You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 30. Well, it's just about happy birthday to the Team Guru podcast. The release of this episode will mark almost exactly one year since I began my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. I know there's a lot of listeners who've been with me since the very first episode. It's been so nice to have you along for the ride. And there's a whole bunch of people who've joined us somewhere along the way. No matter how long you've been listening, it's great to have you company. For the very first time in the show's history, this is a two-part episode. I'd like to say it was a deliberate effort to celebrate the first birthday, but it's not. Just luck, I'm afraid. Ben Eichen is a huge name in rugby league. He has such an impressive list of achievements. Currently, of course, he's the host of Fox Sports NRL 360. Before that, he spent a number of years in the Channel 9 commentary team, But way back in 1995, when he was just 18 years old, he became the youngest player ever to pull on a State of Origin jersey. He played 17 in total, as well as two tests for Australia. In the year 2000, he won a premiership with the Broncos, and the very next year, his career was cut cruelly short by a knee injury. And the side story to all of this is that somewhere along the way, he married the coach's daughter. Now, it's hard for me to decide what's the best part of the conversation you're about to hear. It might be the colourful stories he tells about his playing days, his teammates, coaches and clubs. It could be the inside story he gives us about being part of an Origin squad, or it might be the personal background he shares about his life and family. But I think, more than any of those things, the most valuable element of this conversation are the thoughtful intelligent reflections, the lessons he's extracted from his playing days, his time in the media, and the people he met along the way. I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with Ben Eichen. Ben Eichen, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, David. Well, I feel very lucky to have you, Ben. You're a busy man, mate. You essentially live in Brisbane and work in Sydney. That must keep you on your toes. Well, I go down Tuesday mornings and come home Thursday nights. And in between, I record NRL 360 on Fox Sports, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But truth be told, I don't want to let the secret out of the bag, but I work three days a week, seven months a year. (laughs) And in between... It's all about rugby league. It's, uh, it's a brilliant job. I feel privileged to still be involved in the game and to think that I can work for an organisation as professional and as innovative as Fox Sports just sort of adds to, the, adds to the, the brilliance of the job, really. I've never really thought about that, you know, because when the, when the season clicks over to cricket, I just, I just turn my attention there and sort of forget about you guys for five months of the year. What do you do for those five months? So I spend five months every year trying to get my handicap down. Oh, nice. And the sad thing was, uh, last off season, I, I think I started the, I think I started the five month break on a, an eight handicap, and I thought this is the year I'm going to get down close to scratch. Yeah. And I finished the off season late February, playing off twelve. Oh. <laughs> Suffice to say, I think I overthought my golf. Overthought and it. went backwards. So where are you now? I'm back to eight, believe it or not, playing less golf and playing better. You know what, mate? Eight is my number. For a long time before kids came along, I was a member at Oxley. Yes. And I I was a teacher back in those days. And so I had a lot of time to play. And no matter how much time I applied to it, eight was my number. That was, it it was kind of, that was my limit. And it's a bad handicap because I I reckon off eight and nearly all eight handicappers agree, you can either play to four or 24. Yeah. And when you play a bad shot like you're playing off 24, you think, I'm off eight. I shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. can almost make golf torturous at times, but that's a, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Don't take me there. No, no, I, I could go there. Have I caught you before or after a round today? 
No, before. I'm playing, teeing up on Sunday morning with a couple of mates at Indrapilly. My, my golf club's Indrapilly, uh, so 36 holes out there. And at the moment, I'm I'm battling. I'm playing off eight, but not playing two eight. Yep. Yeah, I know the difference. Yeah. There's a big difference there. There is. Well, hey, look, I'm pleased to have you, Ben. You're, you've had such a fabulous career. It's been, it's really interesting to have observed you since 1995, essentially. So I, I really want to talk through some of the major steps of that career and and some of the lessons that you learned along the way, some of the, the great times, the highs and the lows that you had during those periods. And it wasn't until I started reading about you in preparation for our chat today that it kind of dawned on me that someone of your era, you know, in 1995, starting as an 18-year-old, you came into the game in a, in a really tumultuous period of the game. 1995 was when the Super League rumblings were becoming louder, uh, of course, Eventually in 1997, we had the split competition and you came into the competition with the Gold Coast Seagulls who only had a year left of their life when you entered. They were heady times for a young man to enter a professional game. Absolutely, they were. So I finished school at Palm Beach Currumbin High School in 1994 and uh, 1995 was the start of the Super League War. So I'd signed to play at the Gold Coast Seagulls, I think for three years on $2,000 a year. Really? Yeah. Now, my first year out of high school, because of the Super League split, meant that uh, come origin time, uh, the ARL had decided not to select Super League players. So having played just three first grade games, first year out of high school, I got selected to play for Queensland. So I went from earning $2,000 a season with the Seagulls to win the space of three games for Queensland because we, it was a clean sweep that series under the great Fatty Vorton, the coach that didn't have a clue who I was, earning 22500 gross. So 2000 a year with the Seagulls into $22,500 for three games. Did you think all your Christmases had come at once? Yeah, they, I did early because I think I went and spent close to the $22,500 on a car not realising that tax yet had to be taken out <laughs> of the gross number. You were in the red by the end. It was it was fast moving. It was a year where I was probably not in a good enough uh, headspace. I didn't have the emotional maturity to cope with the success. And I'm not ashamed to say that I kind of went from being this great young professional footballer to the end of the season probably being uh, more of a professional celebrator. I've read that somewhere. Yeah. I love that term. And I also have heard and read a few times of that great story you tell about when you first entered the Queensland camp and met Fatty Vorton for the first time, your coach. Yeah, rode the lift. He had no idea who I was. Uh, I, I, I embellished the story a bit and say that he sent me back down to the foyer because uh, where I was at that point in time was for state of origin players only. And But I, I, I was in the lift with um, Fatty Vorton and Matt Singh. They were having a chat about the series, completely ignoring me because, of course, they had no idea who I was. I... I trailed them both when we got out in the sixth floor at the travel lodge it was back in those days. And uh, he turned around and looked me up and down just blankly. It's pretty much how it happened. And I said, mate, my name's Ben Iken. I'm in your team. And he just shook his head. You know, the old Fatty Vorton head wobble. He said, fantastic stuff. You better come in then. And the rest is history. Three games later, we'd wrapped up the series. I scored a try in the third game. It was just, it was surreal, the whole experience. More work for Matt Sears. Boy, he's made the mistake. Icon, Icon, he'll score. The youngster, he goes in to score. His first origin try. What a magic moment for Queensland, for Paul Gordon, and for Ben Icon. Well, what a way to do it, your first origin try. Ben Icon, he's cleaned up the drink of a, well, a spilled bomb by Matt Sears. What a start to your career, because of course, you'd only played three games for the Gold Coast at that point, so Correct. you weren't even well known to NRL fans, let alone be expected to play for Queensland. You were with some mates and you were playing PlayStation games or something like that, and you tuned in just for the announcement of the team because you were interested to hear if they would indeed name Super League players. That's right. And uh, you tuned in because that was interesting, and you ended up hearing your own name read out. Yeah, look, my the, the guy who was sitting beside me at the time, who was my housemate, I just recently moved out of home with, and, and one other guy we were sharing the house with just looked at me blankly. They, they had no words. In fact, my father rang up, and this is absolutely true. And the first thing he said to me after he'd watched the announcement was, is there another Ben Icon on the Gold Coast? <laughs> Seriously. And I said, no, no, Dad, I, I think I'm in. 
it was that big a surprise. And uh, I had to get my head together, uh, drive to Brisbane the next day and be part of something that was really special in my life. And, you know, I, people often wonder uh, why we get so excited about State of Origin in Queensland. It's because as a young kid being passionate about the game, playing the game, it's kind of the, the biggest deal north of the border. You yeah, know, everybody absolutely. wants to grow up and be a Maroon. So when you, your name gets read out, when you first pull on that Maroon jersey or the coach hands it to you for the first time and there's a great little line they share amongst Queenslanders when you do line up for Queensland every year and you get handed your jersey, they simply say to you, it's your watch, which is powerful, which makes it even more special. And to win for Queensland once is great. To do it three times in a row in the same series, in your first series, is just mind-blowing. And that was the ultimate underdog series, wasn't it, for Queensland? We often take the underdog tag going into origin, even with the success we've had over the last decade. But that series was different. We were even more the underdog. Without the Super League players available for selection, that just reduces the number of of players that Queensland has. We've got a limited number anyway compared to New South Wales. That reduced it even more. As I say, the ultimate underdog series. What was it about the spirit of that team? What did you learn about team harmony and spirit in that season? Well, what I did learn was on day one, when we all came together as a group for the first time, is that Fatty Vorton was not a tactical genius by any stretch. And, and that was the thing. And uh, I, I learned about him in that series and continue to identify and other great leaders is that they know their strengths and weaknesses. And he played to his strengths. You know, he was, a, he was a great orator. You know, he played Origin. He knew and understood what it took to win Origin games and how tough it was. So on that first day when he got the team together, he stood up in front of the group and he just painted the picture. That's all he did, you know. So he, he had a vision over the, the next six weeks for uh, what he expected from the team. And he just laid it out in clear detail and got us fired up and basically put it to us, are we prepared to pay the price to realise that vision that he just painted for us? And we did, every day uh, of every camp and in every game. We, I, I love more recently uh, the comment by Corey Parker on NRL 360, which I think resonated with me this year because it was so true for that series back in 1995. When I asked him what was the, the secret to Queensland's decade of success under Mel Meninga and now Kevy Walters, he said one was belief, but the other was that everybody who plays for Queensland knows that not only do they have to do their job, but they also have to help their mate. And my co-host on NRL 360, uh, Paul Kent, the day after Corey Parker made those comments, uh, was sitting at his typewriter and he said, launched out of nowhere, I've got it. And I turned around him and I said, well, what have you stumbled on, PK? He said the definition of 110%, because no one's ever been able to define it. And I said, so what is it? He said, well, Corey Parker came up with it last night. Give your all, doing your job, and then help your mate do his. And that's how we got through 1995. They were more talented. You know, they had the better players. No two ways about it, the stronger list. But what that Queensland team in 1995 proved is that it was a a group of people that were more than the sum of their individual parts. I'm keen to understand, does Fatty address in that situation directly, when he when he looks at that squad of, what was it, you know, 19 or 20 players, does he look at you and, and kind of admit, put it out on the table, that if everyone was available, some of you wouldn't be here. You're not the first pick Queensland team. There's a whole bunch of players who aren't available. Did he address that directly or did he kind of just slide that to the side? I, I think he... Uh had a moment of what we call assumed knowledge. So rather than uh, remind people that maybe they shouldn't have been there or didn't deserve to be there, uh, from his perspective, what he did was certainly lay on the table that this is the group that we've got and barely anybody is expecting you to win one game, let alone three. So use that as a challenge, use that as motivation. Did that free you up, the fact that the expectations on you as a group were so low? Look, I... Retrospectively, I would say yes. I was 18. So I sat in that speech and while I can remember it, all I, the overwhelming experience for me during that speech and that meeting, because Chris Close came in after Paul Vorton and attempted to say a few words and just the, the bottom lip started to quiver. He couldn't get anything out. Was, uh, was probably two things. One, I became extremely nervous 
very quickly. And that was because of the the burden and expectation that I was quickly reminded of that comes when representing Queensland. Uh, the second part was the, the enormity of the job that we had in front of us. You know, so again, my default position was being very nervous. And when we arrived in our first game, it was at the Sydney Football Stadium, and I was on the bench, I was named on the bench, and we got partway through the second half, I think it was about 20 minutes into the second half, and we were leading 2-0. That was the score at the time. There was a single Wayne Bartram penalty, penalty goal was the only scoring play in the game up to that point. And I was kind of watching the game for the most part as a fan. Right cheering for Queensland, which I'd almost forgotten was my team and that I was part of. I don't know why, but around the midway mark of the second half, I started to get a sense of, hang on, I could get put on the field here. And then all of a sudden I felt like, please don't put me on. Please don't put me on. I don't want to be the guy that loses this for Queensland. And almost immediately after I started to have those thoughts and those feelings, I got the sense that the coach was looking my way. I turned around and he was, and Fatty just said to me, you're right to go on. Wow. And I just, I don't think I said anything. I just nodded my head and next song I knew I was out there. Eichen has gone on, young Ben Eichen has gone on for Dale Shearer. Ben Eichen has played three games in Winfield Cup football. Well, we'll be playing in the under-19s match tonight. How would he be feeling coming into this situation? 13 and a half minutes to go in this game. His side leading by two. How did you switch around your, your mindset? You were, think, you were the, thinking the worst possible thought. I don't want to be the guy who ruins this for Queensland. How did you turn around in your mind? I didn't turn anything around in my mind. I just got real busy real quick. You know, so I got myself into the game as quickly as I could. I think the opposition knew I was out there and very young, so they directed a bit of traffic my way and... Luckily enough for me, I was able to handle it. And then off the back of that, I, I was involved in a couple of good plays. And then you're on your way, really. You know, and that's, that's key when you're in a, a big moment, is just to, to play what you see. a minute and a quarter to go here's Ben Eichen they must get away from the sideline Queensland now Craig Cleaven I've seen a lot of people on the big stage in pressure moments can overthink it they overthink it you know when really uh, the smart thing to do is just to get in there and trust your gut make it happen is, is that the, the number one piece of advice for anyone going into a big game, just to get into the game quickly, try and make tackles, get some contact and get, get yourself physically into the game? Yeah, get, just start working, you know, because origin, I, I've certainly played the Origin games further on where I've been more mature and more conscious of the press and the pressure and, you know, how big Origin is and gone through games where I've waited for the moment to arrive. Right. And before I've known it, you know, it's been 40, 60, 70 minutes gone and I've barely made an impact on the game. And so my advice to young players, and it's probably more applicable to the players sort of midway through their careers because the young guys just tend to uh, live in the moment. Uh, it's, It's when you get a bit more mature and understand how this game works and how big it is, you can procrastinate a bit, is don't think brilliant, think busy. Just get busy and the brilliance will come. And is the best way to get busy that you can count on in defence? Uh, it's both ways. You know, sometimes if you're a winger or an outside back or uh, a 5'8", a playmaker, mm. and you're waiting to come up for the special play or you just think it's good enough to direct the team around the park, is to take your hit up. Even though it's not your job, force mm. your way in there. And you know what? You, you make that first run inside the first five minutes and it's amazing how that, that one simple act can relieve yourself of a whole stack of nerves and anxiety. And again, you're on your way. And once you're on your way, that's when your natural game starts to come to the fore. As a fan, one of the things I like the most watching as we approach Origin Time is the camp. It's the sort of thing that as any football fan and and former hack player, you think that would be the time of your life, being in camp with an origin side. Is it as good as we imagine from the outside? Well, it's not as good today. Isn't it? It's, <laughs> well, it's not, not as much, much fun, fun right. today as it was back when I first started. I, I turned up to the 1995 camp for game one just with pyjamas, 
training gear and uh, I think a bit of casual clothes. They had to take me down to the menswear store to buy the disco gear to actually hit the town Hit the town for the first three days. So before I knew it, you know, we'd done medicals and press conferences and then all of a sudden I was in a car. I think Billy J. Smith was driving. He was doing a bit of work for Forex and we'd been split up into these small groups and gone to these Forex owned pubs or promoted pubs around Brisbane as different groups and sort of I'm drinking schooners of Forex with Trevor Gilmeister and Gavin Allen and you know at that stage I think six schooners and I was anyone's. <laughs> so by the time I got back to dinner I'm sort of you know sort of half talking shorthand and at 18 years of age but you know then it's it's not just that you've got to get up and train the next morning then you go out again the next night and you kind of you go at it for the first three nights. Well now they're, they're lucky if they have one night out and you're lucky if you get half the team to drink because a lot of these guys now take it so serious. Uh, they very much control what they put in their bodies. I mean, you've still got guys like uh, Elfie Langer. I think they call it Elfie's World at the start of Queensland camp where he likes to have a bit of fun and get them going. But everybody respects that it's a new game. It's very professional and everybody's got a, a different way to approach it. Uh, so there's certainly not the, the looseness in origin camps, but coming together with a group of guys... Uh, shooting for a goal that's so big and, you know, kind of protecting yourself from the outside world by spending a lot of time together, having a lot of fun together, working hard together is, is I think is one of the best parts of professional sport, not just origin. It must be an incredible time for a young man at the beginning of his career. Who were the leaders in that first origin squad you were part of? Of course, there was a captain, but in any group there emerged natural leaders. Who, who were they as individuals in the squad? I would say... Absolutely the captain, because sometimes it's not the captain that he may get selected for his ability to talk and be the general on the field. Uh, but in this case, we had Trevor Gilmeister, who was just uh, a leader in every sense of the word. One, he knew how to communicate to the players what was required, but two, he was a, a living example of what he expected from those under his charge, and so he got the work done. Uh, he had a real hard edge about him, Gilly. He knew and understood what Origin was about. And then, of course, he had a, a group of guys in behind him that just idolised him. So I'm talking about Gavin Allen, Gary Larson, Billy Moore, a couple of older forwards and Tony Hearn and uh, Mark Hone. Uh, we had some young guys coming through, Brett Dallas, Robbie O'Davis, Adrian Lamb was playing halfback. Uh, Wayne Bartram was the young dummy half, uh, who all looked up to this group of hard-edge, experienced forwards that aligned themselves with the ARL and had been great warriors for Queensland. Not to mention that the coach of the team was an old hard-head forward himself in Paul Fatty Vorton and standing on you know, his right-hand side as one of the most emo emotional and passionate uh, Queenslanders we've ever seen in Chris Choppy Close. So there was any number of leaders who embodied what playing for Queensland was all about. So it was easy to buy in. It was easy to see what was expected from you. Even though that squad was devoid of the Super League players, you just ran through the names. There's some fabulous names and some people at the very beginning of their career who were, went on to become legends of origin squads for years to come. Hey, I forget, how was Gilly in that squad? Um, he was at the Broncos most of his career. Did, had he left the Broncos by that stage? Oh, yeah, he Ended up, I think, at the South Queensland Crushers oh, that year. Right. Yeah, okay. which was an ARL aligned club. Yeah. Uh, so, but Gavin Allen was at the Broncos. How did how did that happen? Because well, he, he wasn't going to be at the Broncos when Super League. No, came no, no. Out. He he was at the Broncos and had chosen to go in another direction. So, as all the Broncos aligned themselves with Super League, Gavin Allen opted to stay loyal to the ARL. Wow. So, big decision. Big decision. And, This clip from the Brisbane Footy Show in May 1995 demonstrates the type of tension that existed within the game. When Ben started his playing career, the Super League was aggressively courting players and clubs. The ARL was defending its turf. Lawsuits and countersuits were the norm. Tensions ran high and some were gripped with fear that the game they loved was being torn apart and reshaped in another image. Uh, is it worrying times? I mean, the, the Bulldogs have said they're going to sue. What's the Super League going to do about the defections? Well, uh, from the Super League's point of view, Bon, we have a contract with the players, so we expect those players to uh, fulfil that contract. So we'll take whatever action we have to yeah, John, to make sure. Make, hang on, to make sure that uh, make sure that that does happen. So, uh, in this whole issue, the thing I'm I'm uh, disappointed about 
is the uh, is the uh, is the club. I think that the club's been shortchanged, and also their other teammates. So they did this as a as a as a bulk thing, and uh, now they've chosen to uh, turn their back on their teammates, and uh, that's very disappointing. We've already spoken about uh, you know Super League and ARL are in the courts at the moment. Are you going to pursue? Uh, legal avenues to get these players back that have already turned their back on your competition? Oh, very much so. I think that uh, we have a contract in place with them and we expect them to uh, so John, fulfil that contract. Wouldn't you think that was somewhat hypocritical of you, uh, bearing in mind that you're questioning the loyalty of the ARL contracts and you're trying to say you're trying to enforce your contract? I think if that's not hypocritical, I'm not here. But can we just. We just well, no, can, we, can, we, can we just, Mario, we'll get. Take the emotion out. What, what's happened? We haven't asked any player, if you understand how the contracts work, to breach any contract. In the case of the, if there's an ARL contracted player who wants to come and do business with the, with the, Bronc with the uh, Super League, what, what happens in, in, in that case? If that At a player level during that period, was there any nastiness or bitterness or was it just you know, you, you were you were guys caught up in this big machine, the battle between Packer and Murdoch, essentially. Look, I, I my experience was as an 18-year-old, so I just got what was given to me. You know, I just woke up the next day and went and played footy or went and trained for the game of footy that was coming. Yeah. And uh, I think by the end of the series, I'd started the series having had no kind of connection with the ARL at that point. I actually, sorry, I tell a lie. I actually was signed to the ARL leading into that series. I got what they were giving out at that point to 10 local juniors at all the ARL aligned clubs, which was a $10,000 sign-on fee. So on top of my $2,000, I'd been cut a $10,000 check. And uh, again, I just, it was there, it was $10,000, so you take it. My, my most favorite memory from that $10,000 check is that there was a young guy who I was living with at the time who also copped the $10,000, but he took his $10,000 and bought a fish tank for $8,000. <laughs> Did anyone advise him against that? Oh, no. So I, I remember, and it was this was a period when guys were getting stupid money at the top, but the, the silly acts, you know, the going and buying brand new Beamers with cash and you know all sorts of weird and wonderful things that were going on and... Uh, I had a, one of my mates who'd copped his 10 grand and took me up to his room after he told me he'd just gone and spent it. And fair dinkum, spending $8,000 on a fish tank, the fish tank was nearly bigger than the room. I, I didn't know you could spend $8,000 on a fish tank. It's not so much the tank. Right. It's the fish that go in it. Oh, okay. It can be very expensive, apparently. And it was a previous hobby he had? or No. He just decided, I'm into fish now. Newly acquired. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. Now, I was going to say that that must have been a, a head-spinning time for you to meet all these people who you probably looked up to as a youngster coming into squad. I'm in their team now, but it's not as if you came from nowhere. You were a pedigree junior player. You played in the under 17 Queensland side. You've yes. been a representative player. So not all of these faces would have been new to you, I guess. They were new to me in terms of having any sort of relationship. I'd known these guys, but I was getting close and these guys were still my heroes. Uh, I was lucky in that 95 series to be teamed up with a guy called Mark Coyne will probably go down as one of the smartest and most sensible rugby league players of all time. He's since gone on to be CEO of a couple of different companies. Very, very successful. And uh, I guess having shared that three-week experience with a guy like him certainly helped me get through it a little easier. But I, I guess because very quickly we decided that we had this goal, that no one expected us to achieve it, we bonded really quick. So it was either come together or fail. So by coming together really quickly, you know, allowed us to, I think, enjoy the camp, do the work that we needed to get through and ultimately achieve the goal that we wanted to achieve. So it's almost like we, we, we because we bonded so super fast that there was just no time for, you know, any animosity, any being overawed, any competitive yeah. tension. It was like, hey, it's us Down against the world. Yeah. So you, of course, won that series 3-0, one of the, the most famous stories in, in origin history from a Queenslander's perspective. 
you went back to the Gold Coast and played the rest of the season there and you, you didn't have an amazing season, did you? You found yourself back in reserve yeah. grade at some point after the dizzying heights from origin. And then of course you left the Gold Coast after that, that first year and started playing with the North Sydney Bears. It wasn't all smooth sailing there either, was it? You went to the Bears at a time when the Super League war was at its height. Uh, they were an ARL affiliated club and eventually were disbanded by the end of your time at the Bears. What was it like to be at a club, uh, that one of the oldest clubs in the comp, that eventually was merged and then disbanded? Well, it was a similar sort of process or experience uh, watching North Sydney having to merge with Manly that I kind of went through at the sort of at the end of that 12 months I had at the Gold Coast. You know, I often make the joke that started my career at the Gold Coast, they folded. Uh, I went to the North Sydney Bears, they folded. I ended up at the Broncos, and thank God. They've done okay. They're still alive, so it wasn't me. <laughs> but uh, by the time I reached 1998, which was probably my best NRL season, personally, I, I, you know, we won a series. I'd got the chance to be coached by Wayne Bennett and finally played in a, uh, a state of origin side that welcomed back the likes of Alfie Langer and Wendell Saylor, Gordon Tallis, et cetera. All those guys that had been attached to the Super League and then finish the season playing two tests for my country. Uh, 1999 came and again, there was the threat of competition reduction, rationalization and uh, the Bears, whether or not they'd survive. And like I did after State of Origin 1995, in 1999 with the Bears, I, I lost my way. You know, I, ha I hadn't learnt any lessons out of 95. I'd kind of had this experience where I'd started to play poorly and gone off the rails and ha wasn't old enough to understand why and then apply the lessons every year thereafter. So 1999 comes around and I stray off the path. You know, I'd had a great season in 1998 and again, my football suffers and I still don't know why, you know, at that point. When you say you strayed off the path, what do you mean by that? Well, just you, you compromise your preparation. So all of a sudden you start to make little choices about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing that don't fit with the path you need to be on. And, you know, I look back now and I, I call them premiership efforts and sacrifices. So you stop doing the extra 15 minutes or 30 minutes after everyone else trains on areas of your game that need improvement. Uh, you stop giving up things in your life that you know you're better off without that are going to contribute to better football. And uh, you kind of don't notice it's happening because you start to make those choices off the back of some, some good footy. And so you, you make all these smart choices on the way to good form and good performances. And then, you know, you've heard me use the term already, you become the professional celebrator. So you start to go and celebrate your success. You know, and it's not just about going out and having a night and saying, this is great. We need to celebrate success, which is important. It's then flows into to compromising on all those little choices you make daily. And then you continue to play, right? You continue to play well for the first few weeks. And the bad form doesn't hit, you know, for kind of six or eight weeks down the track. And because there's the lag, you're left scratching your head and you're thinking, why the hell aren't I playing well? And again, so you have to go through this whole sort of life audit process. And what you end up getting is this kind of roller coaster, this up and down form across the season. And that's where the champions are so great, is that they know that consistent output, consistent results come from the consistency of effort, not during the 80 minutes, but in the week leading up to the 80 minutes. And they don't compromise. You had a great year in 1998. Was some part of that rough patch in 99 resting on your laurels a little bit? I'd, I've never kind of, I've always tried to live up to my laurels. That's the thing. It's, it's, but what I didn't realise is that you can go into every game with the intent to play well, but if you haven't done the work properly, you're never going to be able to get there. Sure, you might fluke it occasionally. So I just started to enjoy myself too much at different periods in my footy career. And it was those times when I sort of, instead of getting to training early, I'd stay out in the surf a little longer. And or instead of just having six beers after a game, I'd stay at the 6am, you know, and then your, your week's compromised. You don't train as well. And Again, it doesn't show up the next Sunday. It shows up in three Sundays' time. And, and hard to identify the cause in that case. You had tried to get a release from your contract with the Bears in 99 to come to the Broncos. You eventually came to the Broncos in 2000. 
What was it like playing out an extra year with the Bears after having tried to release yourself from them? It was a really tough year for everybody. So I, I didn't re- at that stage look at it through a singular focus. You know, we were struggling on the field as a team. We'd been relocated to Gosford, the training unit out of North Sydney. And that was what I saw as the opportunity for me to go home. Okay. I didn't sign up to play for a North Sydney Bears side that was playing out of Gosford. I got refused uh, my release from my contract. Uh, and there was a lot of guys that felt a bit aggrieved, you know, having to relocate themselves. We kind of sucked that up. We went up there. We weren't playing well. Uh, we sort of started the season playing our home games out of ANZ Stadium at Homebush, finished playing home games at North Sydney Oval. It was a messy year. Yeah, it was a messy year for everybody. You know, we sort of lost a coach midway through off the back of a bit of a player's coup and no one sort of really felt proud about that and... So we were this group of young men. Sure, I was still pretty young at that point, but I knew that my attention and my focus wasn't where it needed to be. And Who was it, the coach you lost? Was it Peter Louis? Peter Louis was the coach. Really? And yeah. he was overthrown with a player's coup? Yeah, yeah. So the players basically went in three quarters of the way through the season and said, listen, we think in the best interest of the club, uh, we need to change a coach. Uh, look, I don't remember exactly uh, what the machinations were that led to us sort of going into his office, but I was part of that. I you sort were. of stood up the back of the room. Can't remember the conversation exactly. And still to this day, I, I mean, I, I don't feel proud. But at the same time, I, I'll often say to people, you, you get nowhere in life unless you're prepared to have the tough conversation. So there was uh, a lot of things that happened in that year that I think wouldn't have come about had we been winning on the field. Yeah. But when you start to question yourself, uh, your first... Uh, I think your first your first position then is to start to find an excuse. If you haven't got a really strong sense of self and your head's not where it needs to be, once you start doubting yourself, rather than sort of curl up in the fetal position and you know get depressed about life, you'll, you'll point the finger occasionally. And I think as a group, that's what we might have done. So in the search for answers, rather than look inward, we looked a bit outward. And it wasn't until that season finished and... Truth be told, I had a couple of years at the Broncos and grew up a bit that I could look back on that 1999 season and uh, say that as a group, we just weren't in the right headspace. The grand final is underway. Will it be Brisbane? Will it be Sydney Roosters? in the year 2000 you did move to the Broncos and I imagine it was a very different experience you were on shaky ground at both the Gold Coast and the North Sydney Bears in terms of the existence of the club and then you went to this Broncos outfit probably the most professional outfit in the competition at the time they'd had an enormous amount of success how different an experience was that for you as a player I love the Broncos. I love the experience of being around Wayne Bennett and the Broncos players in 1998 in the Origin team the thing I loved about playing with Alfie and Kevy and, and Wendell and, and Gordon was that they were real winners, but they also knew how to have a good time. We were a really serious club when it came to our work at North Sydney. You know, Jason Taylor was a great captain, worked really hard, but it was all about focus and, you know, getting the, the process right, the training right. Uh, and by the time I'd got to the, the Broncos, while well, they worked really hard, super hard, in fact, everything was a competition. It was just a bit of a twist on training. So you're in the gym and everyone's trying to beat each other. You, you get out in the training paddock and underway and there are a lot of small-sided games, so a lot of, uh, a lot of competitive tension about winning and uh, getting the results and pushing each other and personal bests. And, but sort of laced through this experience I was having at the Broncos were guys like 
Elf and Kev and Gordy and Wendell, who just made the work environment so much fun. Forever taking the piss, forever finding the lighter side of what we were doing. And, you know, it was almost in that environment that the, the hard work didn't seem so hard because you're having so much damn fun. And so the rugby league season, which can be a real grind, became less of a grind, even when you weren't playing that well, because there were guys in that team that just knew not to take themselves too seriously. Even though they took their footy serious and they played serious, you know, they were just forever making sure that we had fun along the way. Yeah. It sounds like part of the secret, well, not so secret secret to the Broncos' success was they, they really got that balance between purpose and pleasure right. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Absolutely. Wayne Bennett is almost a mythical figure in Australian sport. He's revered well beyond the boundaries of rugby league. He has a style that is mysterious and no-nonsense in equal measure. Famous for the relationships he forms with his players, the performance culture he fosters, and the success his teams have enjoyed, Wayne Bennett's opinion on leadership is sought like few others. A true leader does not see himself as a leader, but becomes one by the quality of his actions and the honesty of his intent. Can I repeat that for you? He or she becomes one by the quality of their actions and the honesty of their intent. I can't tell you the amount of mistakes I've made, but people generally start because they know I made the decisions for the right reasons, and I'm sure you've made mistakes. But if they feel you've done it for the right reasons, it's a whole different outcome when things go bad to when they know there was an agenda and there was a bias and all the other stuff that goes with it. True leaders are like eagles. They don't flock. You find them one at a time. One of the reasons that, you know, I said recently, you know, Alan Langer was one of the you know, you were maybe the fifth or the sixth sporting podcast that I've done. I had Steve Nance on a little while ago, of course. I started with Steve Hooper in episode one in this very room. I've spoken to Pat Howard, Brendan Cannon, and I feel like I'm missing someone. But there's one name that has come up in every one of those conversations when we talk about leadership in the sporting world. What is so special about Wayne Bennett? I know it's impossible to summarise it in a, in a couple of sentences, but why is it that he's the name that has popped up more often than anyone else's on this podcast? Because he's so successful. You know, I think uh, James Hurd at the start of his career, if I, I remember the story correctly, he went over to Chelsea, I think it was at the time, where uh, Jose Mourinho was coaching. And uh, he's a bit of a quirky guy, Mourinho. James Hurd asked him, he said, look, I'm a young coach just coming into grade. Have you, have you got any advice for me about building a, a long and successful career? And Mourinho said, win quick. And truth be told, you don't work from the ground upwards when you analyse coaches in professional sport. You work from results backwards. So you look at Wayne Bennett and you've got a guy that's won seven premierships and we try and figure out how he's done it. And it's in the working backwards from the results that we kind of identify these threads of greatness in what he does. If Wayne Bennett had have coached exactly the same way for the last 30 years, but only won one premiership, we wouldn't be talking about, we him. Wouldn't be talking about him the same way. Yeah. And that's just the truth of professional sport. But he has, so I'll answer your question. For me, having known Wayne as a coach and uh, as a father-in-law, that the great unspoken quality of Wayne is he has great empathy. So he genuinely cares for people. So everything he does in his workday with his playing group has this foundation of, I want what's best for you, and it's real. So when he asks you to go over and above in training or in a game, you give back. You give back what he's asking for because you know he cares. And, and there's, you've obviously seen it but it's because he's done any number of press conferences but when one of his players gets in strife he disciplines in private and then puts himself between the player and the media in public just as a father would do for his child and that's how you feel when you're in the care of Wayne Bennett now this is something that's innate and I think it's in all the great coaches and they'll never they'll never acknowledge it because I've I've seen two coaches 
who approach on the surface the process of coaching exactly the same way. You know, they yell, they scream, they berate, they kick chairs. You know, they force tactics down their throat, uh, down the throat of the players. Yet it's the coach that has the genuine empathy that's going to get the results. You look at Craig Bellamy and some of his behaviour in the coaching box. That's not the Craig Bellamy I know. He, he was the assistant coach at the Broncos under Wayne Bennett. He has got the best blow-up on the planet in him. Hasn't he just? He can rip you apart and put you back together after a game like nobody else. So he does those kind of things in private as well that we see on TV. Yeah, absolutely. You've seen his halftime speeches. He doesn't like to be seen, but here's the thing. Craig loves his players. So he's got the cookies in the bank. And they know that he loves them. You know, and you know, you, you'll cop that from someone that you know loves and you can't fake that. You know, that's got to be authentic. And I think that's underpins everything that Wayne does. Yes, he's got a style about him that's very unique. Wayne Bennett, uh, he lives uh, the example that he, he wants from his players. I still remember turning up on the first day of pre-season training in 1999, you know, for the, the gap torture run and, you know, 50 of the Best young rugby league players in the country about to set off. Wayne starts stretching. I thought, that's great. What's he doing? He runs with us. I think on that day, he finishes second of 50. And it's right there in that moment that you realise that you, anything he asks you to do, you've just got to do now because he's just done it with us. Does he still do that? Uh, I don't know if the, the Broncos still do it. Oh, okay. I don't know if that form of training right. still exists in the modern game. But yeah. He still runs. Still He's, a little bit more scientific than that now. Look, and I'll, I'll give you a bit of insight, and I, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing, but uh, after I retired, Wayne and I uh, used to run together a fair bit. Runs a lot and very, very good at it. So it was very hard for me to keep up. But I remember finishing up after one run. You know, I was five years retired at this point, and he just turned to me and he said, Ben, if I ever stop running, you just give me a kick up the ass. Right. And I said, right, what, what's that about? And he said, well... Still today, getting up to go for my run is the hardest thing I do in the workday. And I feel as though if I can commit to that and get that done, everything afterwards is easy. I have read that story before about that run. And uh, I wasn't surprised because I'd read that before that Wayne loves to run and he was a, he's a very fit man. But I was surprised by who he came second to. The captain. Kevin Walters. Yeah. I was surprised to hear that in a, I mean, Kevin was a, a fabulous player, of course, but he's not. The first person you think of when you think athletic rugby league player. No. So was he? Was that all captain determination to lead the way, or was he a great runner? Look, again, I, I don't want to speak out of school here, but I think Kev went through a bit of a uh, process with his training where perhaps he didn't take it all that serious because he was such a natural footballer uh, up until which time he lost his wife, Kim, and then all of a sudden got really, really fit, and he can run. Kevy, boy, oh boy, really? he can run. Yeah, and his, his twin brother, Kerrit, I think was one of the fittest during his time at the Broncos. But for me, again, I mean, there's another example of uh, leading by example. If you've got the coach and the, the captain yeah. beating the pants off everybody, you know, Kevy would have been, oh, I can't remember, might have been 33, 34 at that stage, yeah. you know, right at the back end of his best days, uh, setting the standard for all those young guys and senior guys that were playing at the club. Hey, that was something I couldn't work out in my research. I read that in that first year, and I was obviously watching the game, but my memory is fading. You played 5-8 in the grand final, but Kevy was still at the club. What happened there? How did that work out? So we started the season, I think, with Ben Walker at halfback mm -hmm. and Kevy at 5-8. And over the course of the next 8-12 games, we tinkered with a few different combinations. So I, I, I was playing in the centres. Mm -hmm. And eventually we settled on Kevy at halfback. Uh, I, I ended up playing 5'8", and Tony Carroll, who was a forward, shifted to the centres, played right centre inside Wendell Thaler. Uh, for whatever reason, Wayne thought that was the best fit. And um, I learned a lot of Kevy that year. You know, playing in the halves with someone like that who'd sort of done his trade and had a wonderful career outside <laughs> a bloke who should have his own statue, to be honest with you, Alfie Langer, was like a rugby league university degree on steroids. I bet it was. Uh, it just... Uh, just a great man, Kevy Walters. You know, again, like his partner in crime for so long, Alfie Langer, knew how to have a good time. You know, well, they were doing all that winning and having all that success and putting in all that hard work, but a great footy brain. You know, he was the talker out of the two of them, and I learned a lot of him in that 12 months. It was really good. There's a more serious side to both those characters, isn't there, than, than we, the public, have gotten to see over the last 20 years of, of knowing in the, in the public light. I think we saw a little bit out of Kevin this year with his role as State of Origin coach. 
Not often, and that's why it's so powerful. In 1998, we'd won the first game of the Origin Series. New South Wales come back and got us in game two. That one was at uh, Lang Park Suncorp Stadium, I think. So we're going back to Sydney for game three, all square. And the Alan Langer experience for me, that was the first one I'd had, had been nothing short of laughs and comedy and fun and frivolity and, of course, great football and uh, great captain and a great bloke. But in the lead-up to the third game, he sat the group down. I can't remember if it was the night before the game. I think it was. And for the first time in my experience, sat there and addressed the team without any comedy, straight down the barrel. And it was so powerful. So when Elfie spoke like that, you listened. He doesn't overplay it. When Kevy speaks like that, which doesn't happen often, mm. you listen. You know, it's like the coach that blows up his team at his team, you know, every second week for a poor first half. The, the blow up just, it stops resonating. Yeah, yeah. And so for those two guys who, who know how to have a good time and know that we're at the end of the day, we're playing rugby league, we're playing a sport. And while it's important to a lot of people, if you take it too serious too often, Again, you just end up overthinking things. Mm. And you never, you never play your best natural football. And that's what those two guys ultimately will go down as. Two of the best natural footballers that we have ever seen. We've, we've mentioned the, the coach blow up a few times. There's, there's a handful of them in the NRL who are kings of blowing up in the, in the box. We see them on TV. As a leadership person, as someone who thinks about things from the perspective of leadership, I often wonder what kind of effect that has on their team. It's sort of setting... In my eyes, the example that, hey, it's okay to lose control. And that's a very dangerous thing on a rugby league field. And it's even worse from the coach who is not in the physical battle themselves. They're up in the box. Is there more to it than that? Is it a bad example from a coach losing control or am I missing something because I haven't been part of a setup? I think it depends on the coach. You know, so if the coach is usually in control, then when they lose control, you kind of scratch your head and think something's not right here. But if you've got a, say, coach like Craig Bellamy, who's superbly passionate and wears his heart on his sleeve with everything, then you'll accept it. You know, as long as, as I pointed to before, there's un, there's this undercurrent of he cares for you. Mm. You'll cop it, won't you? But if, 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 if it's the leader that stands up and rants and raves and the overwhelming feeling or the overwhelming sentiment out of what they're saying is you're letting me down, you're yeah. letting me, the coach down, yeah. then the, the people who are meant to be receiving the message will just disengage. It doesn't carry away. And that's, that's what they call losing the dressing room. It's when the players, it's not so much that they stop believing in the coach, it's that they all of a sudden feel that the coach is behaving more for himself than the players. Does that most often happen with a coach who's under pressure for his own job? I'd say so. Because I doubt a coach is going to get selfish if the team is winning. So of course. most bad habits come out when uh, a team's losing or the coach feels under pressure. There's one coach in the NRL in particular, a long-time coach, has had mixed success. I, I often hear him in a press conference afterwards blaming the refs, blaming this, blaming that. And I, I think what's, you know, maybe that's just smart. Maybe he does that in the media and then in private he's onto his players about taking responsibility. But without knowing that, on the surface, I think, geez. That's giving your players who have just lost another game an, an excuse for why they lost rather than thinking about their own performance. And you're right. If you're half smart, you know as a coach that if that's the real message you're trying to portray, then it's also going to re be received by your players a certain way. So I, I suspect that if you're coaching NRL in 2016, you're very careful about what you say in the post-match press conference. And you may even tip your players, at, your senior players at least, that I'm going to put this particular message out there, but we need to know as a group privately that that's not where our focus needs to be. And if you're not doing that, so if, you, if you're going into the public forum and sort of spruiking all these different reasons why the world's against you as a team, there's every chance that your playing group is that and they start to buy in themselves. And then it's kind of uh, the world's against us. I, I remember when I was at the, uh, the Cowboys for a few years on the board and the, the club had come off the back of a couple of final series where they'd been dudded by the referees, but not on purpose. And there was a real risk that uh, this whole language of the Sydney conspiracy, the you know, swimming against the tide mm. could have kind of found its way into the walls of the joint up there. But the, 
you know, the chairman, Lawrence Lancini, uh, Neil Henry, the former coach, and Paul Green, the new coach, worked really hard to make sure that that didn't become part of the, the Cowboys' DNA. And ultimately, I think, out of what was a, a really tough period for the club, and especially their fans, where they felt like they had been wronged, it, 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 it led to a premiership because of the way they handled that. I was at that game last year. First grand final I've ever been to. Obviously the best grand final magic. that I could have ever gone to. It was magic. I've only ever received two pieces of advice about coaching. First was that there are only two types of coaches. Those that have been sacked and those that are waiting to be sacked. And secondly, the coaches sleep like babies, which I have to say appealed to me at the time. Until I learnt, that's because they wake up every two hours crying. <laughs> Sunday night, Parramatta coach Ricky Stewart gave us an all-too-rare insight. 16 coaches in the NRL, highly sought-after jobs. Despite what I just said before about my outside observations, my other assumption is that they're all pretty special people. That there must be something quite special about each of those people. I'm sure there's different things that they've got going for them, but is it true? Am I safe to assume that everyone who gets a job in the NRL has got something going for them? Yeah, intestinal fortitude at the top of the list. I mean, I don't think I could coach. It's just a, it can be a thankless job at times. And the part of the, the role that you love most, which is building a game plan and working with a group of young men, helping them buy into that uh, and being out in the grass has become such a small part of the job. You've got so many uh, internal, external stakeholders acting on you all the time that need to be managed, you know, your own board and executive, you know, sponsors, the media, player managers. It's just, it's it's constant. So you're forever managing up, managing sideways, and at the same time, having to spend the right amount of time managing downwards on the group that is going to basically Go keep you in a job. Yeah. And uh, I think while there's a, it's such a high-profile role to handle the the continual commentary that often comes in the negative around the job that you're doing takes a, a person with a, a really deep strength of character. And, and anyone that's kind of stayed in that role for any length of time, long period of time, has to, I think they almost have to be a glutton for punishment. They have to get to the point where they can laugh it off and understand that it's just white noise. And that's, that's not easy to do. It really isn't. When it's played out in national newspapers and on TV. Oh, you know, they've got families. And if, if, if you can handle it yourself, that's all good and well. But often these guys have to go home to a wife or, or kids that are going through primary school or high school. And, you know, their friends are wanting to talk about, you know, their father and how he can't coach or how he's going to be out of a job. And, you know, I've, I've had friends in head coaching roles in other codes go through that and it's not easy for wife and children you know it makes it which makes it another I don't want to call a family a stakeholder but it is you know in this kind of role that they're playing acting on the coach and and potentially struggling and and when that starts to become problematic for you I can't I find it very very admirable that with that going on a coach then still has the capacity to keep his attention on where it needs to be. And that was Ben Ike, and he has such a great story to tell. He was part of a fairy tale chapter in Origin's colourful history in the very first year of his career. I loved hearing the inside story, Ben's very personal account of his playing days, the people he met, his personal maturity, and his observations of a game that has been the cornerstone of his life. Don't forget, this is a two-part conversation. Part two will come out next week. You'll find it in exactly the same way you found this one, on the Team Guru website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or perhaps on Stitcher. I will, as always, share the lessons I took from my conversation with Ben. You'll find it on the podcast page for this episode on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You can comment on this episode or any other on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can email me directly, David at teams.guru. I look forward to your company next time on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. I'll take you out with a sneak peek of what you can look forward to in the next episode. 
This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. The bravest thing you ever did in football was to marry the coach's daughter. Yeah, there was never a point in my time where I ever questioned whether or not uh, I'd still keep seeing Beth because of the relationship I had with Wayne at work. When it came to the the media work, I've absolutely put a stack of training into it. So I've done acting classes, presenting classes. I, I enjoy challenging myself because when I get bored, I get dangerous. Is that in the corporate sphere, and it operates the same way in the media, is that there's a bit of a feedback vacuum. A leader is no more than the sum total of the efforts of their people. I work with Paul every day, and he is still my favorite journalist to read. My personal leadership philosophy is best people, best practice.